0: On to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Julia Armstrong Danyese to the show. Julia Armstrong Danyese is co founder and CEO of Earth Knowledge and is on a mission to provide the most authoritative, integrated, planetary intelligence, translating the complexity of our Earth systems into clear, actionable impact to help build a more sustainable world. Julia is an experienced leader in transforming businesses into sustainable operations and investments that are more resilient and actively contributing to the restoration of our planet. As Earth Knowledge's CEO, Julia constructively challenges businesses and organizational leaders advocating and driving reinvention through technology to deliver sustainable change. Julia, how are you doing today?
1: Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here, Raj. I love what you're doing with your podcast and Bigger Than Us is such a great message and these are wonderful narratives and stories.
0: Thank you, Julia. I really appreciate that. And quick shout out to Corey Glickman from Infosys who introduced us. I'm very grateful for him for doing so.
1: Yes, thank you. I am too.
0: So. I'm going to start with a question that might not be so obvious, but how do you go, what's the road look like from a master's in psychology to entrepreneurship.
1: My background actually is entrepreneurship, and I'll explain more why. Um, actually, from my family history on both sides of my my parents' um, ancestry from Europe to actually when we migrated to the colonies, we had the first glass factory. Um, generations evolving have always been about what can we do to help our world and how how can we build a business that can help you know leave the world in a better place so that is how i was raised on both sides of the family and originally i thought i was going to go traditionally to studying i got accepted at yale and princeton and i decided to not go the traditional route i decided to, um, to join a company that I ended up being a part of the management of, and we helped grow this company from being in trailers to going public within five years. And that experience, along with my upbringing and um, some of the business background, international background that I have, um, really was groundbreaking for me. Studying psychology was a part of that really to innovate, we have to understand success and the whole dynamics of success, dynamics of working as teams, dynamics of communicating our message, and really transformation. So it's, that's where I've gotten additional uh, training and mentorship is around helping with change management and transformation. And that's pivotal um, in innovation.
0: So while not to date or age you, the degree in psychology was a while ago, you're seeing the Idea around soft skills becoming more and more important many, many years later. What are your thoughts about that?
1: Yes, I actually uh, started my own consulting practice and had that for about 18 years, um, advising and mentoring and helping in innovation in various sectors. I was actually a managing partner with a VC firm. Um, So That is all gave me experience where I could see that I was really impacting change, even though I didn't have my background in the sectors that I was advising or working with. My background wasn't in science and technology, even in starting Earth Knowledge, but in in the whole idea that unless the science is understood and actionable, change can't really happen. And when change needs to happen, there's a lot of resistance from us as human beings to really make those big changes happen. So that's where I've been extremely grateful um, over the years at the recognition of that vital importance of the soft skills. Um, Trust has been another Finally, highlighted process and valued process that has taken far too long to really be recognized. But building trust at all levels is something that I've been uh, that I've really excelled in and focused on and really valued. Because if we can't trust each other and we can't work together in trusting teams and have, in, in the case of Earth Knowledge, very authoritative, trustworthy data and processes to make these sustainable decisions, then there's a big barrier. There's a saying that that collaboration goes the speed of trust. And that is what I've experienced. So I'm very grateful today that finally you're asking a great question, Raj, and that the world is really recognizing how critical for change and for really our economy that that trust and these soft skills really uh, involve.
0: I appreciate that. And before we get to earth knowledge... What was the company you took from a trailer to public?
1: That, and I was in management. I did not um, found that company versus I did co found Earth Knowledge. So the company was Sierra Tucson, and they were um, originally literally in trailers. And we brought on um, so much um, expertise and help with this whole building out of the facilities and managing very high. Um, level celebrities to get help with their problems. And I was in the management structure of basically scaling this to going from uh, ordinary citizens that were attending Sierra Tucson to Ringo Starr. So it was an wow. incredible experience to be in management with, and part of my job in managing and hiring and building teams and was also keeping the culture of that company and making sure that uh, the messages, the culture, the relationships would stay the same, even though we became a publicly traded company.
0: Sounds like an amazing journey.
1: It was.
0: <laughs> now, we've both teased Earth Knowledge a couple of times. Can you give the audience an overview of Earth Knowledge and your role at the organization?
1: Yes. um, Earth knowledge, essentially what we're doing at this point is we're building a digital twin of the Earth. And we provide this kind of integrated planetary intelligence platform that's of the highest caliber of authoritative science-based information basically for um, being able to mitigate operational and sustainable and investment risks and harness opportunities um, for companies and for the financial sector. So I'm co-founder and CEO of Earth Knowledge. Part of what we do in our process over the years is that we built this living scientific network of Nobel laureates and expert scientists from all over the world, this treasure trove of amazing people who have studied different aspects of the earth. And what they do with earth knowledge then is they know that when they, their information and data and models and forecasts are integrated into our our platform, that provides an avenue for their research to have a whole other level of scale and impact in the world. So our Earth Knowledge Network is a very critical part of what I oversee and help drive, um, as well as strategic partnerships in the business and finance world to utilize the information so we've partnered um, in a wonderful way with microsoft who's a fantastic partner not only with technology but they're very relationship based with us as partners with our customers in a co-selling process. And they also really value sustainable science. So we're working at all levels of with the financial sector, the corporate sector, um, them helping us continue to build our platform on Azure as well as their sustainable science, which the team is overseen by Lucas Joppa.
0: Now, That just gives those, you a sample of us. <laughs> now for those that might not be familiar with the idea of a digital twin. Can you explain what exactly that is?
1: Yes, so when um, Dr. Frank Daniese and I co-founded Earth Knowledge in 2003, our whole vision was that we needed, we wanted to drive sustainable decisions through integrating accurate, authoritative information about the Earth. And the way that the Earth works is um and the way that we're building our digital twin is that we integrate models from the subsurface the the geologic layers all the way up to the atmospheric layers and it's really how these systems interact that give the most important information that we can gather in order to make the most sustainable decisions so the water information relates to agriculture cycles and models, relates to landslide, relates to ocean processes, relates to climate change, um, et cetera. And there's these interactions of these systems that we analyze and understand and then also forecast. We we do forward-looking business intelligence in order to be able to look at what we imagine could be happening at any location around the globe within um, up to the year of 2100. So let me back up for a minute. Um, Part of our process is we have integrated historical information from the late 1800s. And that means at any location on the globe, we've integrated as much information as we can. And over time, we're building out more and more so that we can understand how the earth has been changing and evolving over time. Then our models are run forward-looking into the future up to the year of 2100. At any location then, what we're analyzing is how we as human beings are impacting the earth and the earth impacting us. So what we do is we look at sustainability and global change indicators and factors. And so we break up these processes of global change. And global change, as I said, can include climate change, pollution, infectious disease, invasive species, land conversion, uh, renewable resources. It's all kinds of human-planet interactions. And so what we do is we work very hard to simplify this complex information so it can actually be used because it's too complicated (laughs) for most of us to really understand at a deep level. Yet businesses and financial organizations, government agencies, etc., want to use this information. So we've developed over 300 indicators that break down these global change processes so that they can be measured And then inform that corporation or financial institution how at any operations, the location of any operation or supply chain around the world, they might need to limit their, mitigate their climate risk or mitigate how they're impacting biodiversity, for example, or what kind of water issues there might be or all kinds of, you know, different impacts that can be there. So we help companies actually develop then mitigation plans to mitigate their risks and and which maximizes their investments and maximizes um, their operations as well.
0: So I have friends and acquaintances that build digital twins of infrastructure, machinery, and um, virtual machines, essentially, where they can run scenarios, like you said, of what might happen, what might go wrong on the simulation, on the digital twin. And then, like you said, predict or forecast. What moved you and Frank to decide to build a digital twin of the earth?
1: That, that actually was a great summary of what we do, but with the earth. Um, what And this has been a really important part of our journey. For, since 2003, that's been our goal is to, the, the words nowadays are used as digital twin. Then what we were saying is we wanted to make sure that we built a replica of the Earth from the subsurface to the atmosphere so that we could understand how these systems interact and therefore provide the best business intelligence, planetary intelligence we could to drive these sustainable decisions. So that's what we decided to do because we knew it was the only way to make the really true, lasting, sustainable decisions. In our journey um, in, with the company, the world wasn't ready for that. The business and financial world hadn't suffered enough of the multi-billion dollar and trillion dollar losses with climate risk, et cetera. So what we did is we did aspects of the digital twin. We built water models and climate models and agriculture, et cetera. Um, We we forecasted where wildfires would be in, in the state of California, for example. So we worked with the Obama administration related to their climate data initiative. And again, our tools for forecasting were used at that point. But what had us hold on to this vision, because we were told really four years for 15 years, we were told that we should change this goal of ours, that it was too big, that we weren't focused enough, and that we should change it. We should build a water app or an ag app or a climate app. And we would say, well, we're actually very focused. It's just what we're focused on is building a replica of the earth so that the best sustainable decisions can be made. And it was really holding on to that vision because we know that's what the world needs that made us so driven and committed um, to be able to protect this vision and not go off course to just do a fragment of what our big vision really is. Now, because of the computational power, because of the corporate and financial sector being ready, because government agencies are also worried about their infrastructure and climate risk and all kinds of um, things in the future the time is now really for Earth knowledge to be able to scale at a whole other level, our digital twin. So we're very, very excited that finally we're getting to realize the largest part of our vision and dream, which we think can help the world in the most significant way.
0: You know, while I appreciate the people that said you should perhaps focus and build an ag app, a water app, a climate app, I think I think it's a very myopic view people don't realize that they're all interconnected. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think, you know, agriculture and water, water go hand in hand. So how can you look at one without looking at the other? I don't quite see how that wouldn't be an idea or perhaps taken from a macro standpoint. You need to focus from a holistic standpoint because otherwise, like we do in the, um, I guess, in the healthcare system a lot nowadays, we treat the symptoms and not the underlying causes.
1: Exactly. And it's the same principle that the best medical decisions are made when we look at the whole person and we know what's going on in the different systems of that of the health of that individual and, and their own feeling state and where they are emotionally and all of that. Looking at them as a whole person, we can make help them make the best decisions medically. And it is the exact same thing for our planet, for our world, really.
0: Now, data collection, I believe you said you have access to data going back to the 1800s. Is that correct? Yes. Where does that data reside? Not the data you have now, but the data you collected. Where do you get that data from?
1: There's a lot of that from the government agencies and from, um, you know, we we work actually with the White House as the U.S. Uh, Global Change Research Program. And that that oversees all kinds of government agency information. Um, In the US, it does. Now there's different ones, government agencies that we work with around the world, depending on what country's information we're integrating. But that's certainly one source some nonprofits have really done tremendous research to understand more what was happening earlier. So we gather as much information as we can from academic agencies, from nonprofit and from government agencies to be able to piece together like a tapestry, our best understanding of what was happening, for example, with land conversion, What, what did our world look like, prior to more and more growth in these different areas and in the countries that evolved with urbanization and industrialization, etc., So we look at how the world was in an earlier version as a wild state and what all evolved that developed and impacted the land, impacted biodiversity, impacted the renewable resources. So it really is a threading together like a tapestry of this information. It is incomplete, it is imperfect. And so there's there's work in threading that together in, in the most uh, useful way possible.
0: Are you using any kind of artific- artificial intelligence to help complete that picture?
1: Yes, and we've been using that actually since 2010. Um, this is something that we think is really critical in order to be able to make um, some of the leaps that we need to make to really understand, and, and again, at, at scale to understand the most that we can related to our planetary intelligence.
0: I think it's fascinating. um, And I'm really curious to see, you know, or ask, you have a front seat right now to potentially viewing hundreds of different scenarios as to the direction of climate change and the Earth, et cetera. Your opinion, what are the top one, two, three concerns that you see right now in your models from a climate change perspective?
1: Well, one of the... um, and, and again, just to back up just for a moment, our director of climate science is Dr. Don Wibbles, who was actually President Obama's um, associate director for the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy, um, climate science as well. And we um, trust and are led by a lot of his vision and as an IPCC author, um, as as a Nobel laureate sharing the Nobel Peace Prize um, for climate change, there's a lot of of his and, and our colleagues together that have integrated all kinds of really critical and valuable climate information. Unfortunately, <laughs> it's really looks, uh, you know, it's really a big concern because there's so much that we are not ready for. And when we just look at, um, for example, infrastructure and how just with sea level change that's already evolving, we're just not ready. at At a global scale, we're not ready for infrastructure impacts with sea level rise. And that's just a very fundamental process that we already are forecasting that is of concern. There's what we call um, nuisance flooding that's already going on. So there's sea level rises. one, Level, but there's nuisance flooding where there's the periodic uh, flooding that's going on in these urban areas that is really impacting. Uh, populations impacting individuals. Their houses that they bought that thought were great investments are now getting more and more impacted. That's putting them at risk financially as well as can really put them out of commission um, depending on how severe that is. So that's another uh, piece that we that we track. Um, nature loss is it's enormous concern. We are a part of the task force on nature-related financial disclosure. It's a new organization that has evolved that is kind of a sister organization to the task force on climate-related financial disclosure. And it's, especially in Europe, in the very forefront at this point is understanding the value of nature and how we've impacted nature. And that we're, they're saying there's $44 trillion that is resting on nature, dependent on nature in one way or another. So that is a whole other um, process that's very complicated. Um, but one that deserves just front and center attention. This is why Microsoft, Ernst & Young, and Earth Knowledge has just co-authored a white paper on um, basically biodiversity and finance, and it's called Waking Up to Nature, an Imperative for the Financial Services. It's essentially saying the time is now for us to realize, as you were saying, Raj, we're an interconnected, human planet economy um, process. And so we need to wake up to how dependent we are on nature, how valuable our planet is, how much we can actually do things to mitigate these risks if we wake up and make the changes necessary. So that's another um, one of our our big um, driving initiatives at this point is helping the corporate world and the financial world make better decisions around biodiversity and nature and how they're impacting it, how they're reporting it, how they're reporting ESG and really driving that kind of change. There's a lot of hope in all of this, even though when we look at what the, the models tell us, um, it's an, an enormous concern and worry. Um, but as we're you know, in the process of COP26, and the world is evolving to really be waking up, um, there is tremendous hope, because there are things that we can do to really mitigate these risks and build a better economy and planet and communities.
0: Now, you mentioned nuisance flooding, nature loss earlier, you mentioned fires. Um, in my eyes, these are all you know, the canaries in the coal mines. I think the difference is that when there really was the canary in the coal mine, the miners whose lives were at risk would take it very seriously. And and I don't mean to sound pessimistic, but in today's day, day and age where people are preoccupied with perhaps squid games or other kinds of entertainment, how do you, like, if you had a magic wand, how would you propose we draw more attention to these issues?
1: That's a really great question. Um, what we've seen over the years is And and again, because we started by, if you can think about this, when we used to try to Google um, for earth knowledge, well, we're in the sustainability market. So let's Google the sustainability market, no results. (laughs) (laughs) That's where we started. (laughs) So now we're sitting, earth knowledge sits in potentially a $40 billion opportunity. So for us, finally, there is more and more recognition. Just because where we've come from is uh, such a depletion of being recognized. You know, initially when we were, um, you know, initially the when we would go to companies and talk about Earth knowledge, we would be sent to first of all the nonprofit arm. Then later we would be sent to the social corporate responsibility arm. Then we were um, sent eventually as, for example, Corey Glickman is the vice president and director of sustainability for Emphasis. Now, he gets all of this and really understands at such a profound level, um, you know, with their CEO, with their board, how big of an issue that sustainability is and wants to help all their customers also become more sustainable as well. So for us, this is an incredible Growth and there's more recognition and attention than ever. Uh, we're actually introduced to CEOs of financial institutions and corporations, and um, you know, really the people at the top that can make these very large changes. So from our perspective, this is what we've been waiting for and we believe it'll continue to build more and more. Now, why has it become the way that it is at this point where finally earth knowledge is leading and getting the recognition for what we're doing is really because of the pain Of the financial losses that the corporations have gone through, the financial institutions have gone through, and then an incredible human movement from the younger generations on up to really, truly understanding the importance of sustainability in our planet and actually truly caring. So that momentum is very exciting to be a part of, and we do expect that to continue. Um, There's more and more investment that is going in to ESG-related funds and to uh, nature-risk-related funds that are, you know, careful to be nature-positive or... um, you know, all kinds that are climate risk and they're evolving. So we're thrilled that this is finally happening and are are very hopeful to continue to drive that, drive that forward.
0: To add to my question though, you and I were steeped in this every day. The minute I step out of my quote-unquote immediate work occupation network and I speak to people who are perhaps close friends, families, about their questions and concerns, if they have any regarding climate change or some of the challenges from a broader perspective, very few people that I find are really either aware or engaged in any way at all. How would you suggest we better spread the message or the word or the narrative to, and I'm going to say everyday people? Mm
1: -hmm. Yes. Um, One of the things that we did earlier in Earth Knowledge, um, which was was one of the vehicles or ways that we could do this is we built what we call the Earth Knowledge Portal, which really was the first to market of a sustainability hub. And we did that when Google came out with Google Earth. We went to Google and talked to them about, we've got the the Earth Knowledge Network, the scientists around the world and information around the world that we can integrate on the globe so that we can actually build this sustainability hub together and provide life, 24-7, live streaming data and information to the world, free. It, basically a, a SaaS product that was free. And they were very excited, jumped on board. We contacted the BBC and Guardian, World Wildlife Fund, all kinds of government agencies around the world, nonprofits. Everybody that we contacted at that point in time was saying, yes, I want to join in. Yes, this will help get our information out. Yes, sustainability is, you know, matters. But we allocated, Raj, very little money, um, almost none to marketing. Uh, we were sponsored by the University of Phoenix, that was owned by Apollo Group, and so they had nine hundred thousand students, staff, and faculty at the time. That they didn't have environmental studies at that time that they offered, and so they sponsored the portal. But other than that, in Google, we didn't we didn't advertise over the five and a half years that we ran this free information portal. Over eighty percent of the countries of the world accessed our information, and this was one of our aha. Moments as well, as we thought, oh my gosh. So, we're getting told by companies that we tell about Earth knowledge that we must be a nonprofit or we need to talk to their social corporate responsibility. Yet, the feedback we're getting from the world, from the everyday person who's using information sources, is it spread like wildfire. And so that was one of our aha moments we ran it from 2007 to 2013 where we said um, we now realize really that was forecasting where our world has evolved where sustainability is much more front and center Um, but one of our goals right now in scaling earth knowledge is actually to have a media arm of earth knowledge of the earth knowledge channel to be able to interview and and make Uh, this kind of science and information much more tangible, much more approachable and more in the everyday world that people can understand, including business leaders, including you know those that just need to be able to understand the earth in a better way to make better decisions, but also the everyday people. So that's something that we would love to, again, do a second version of the earth knowledge portal, build out our earth knowledge channel in a way that we can have interviews and and educate people and and direct them to places where they can get better information. There is, phenomenal information now that is out there Um, but often it's hard for people to find and it's hard for people to relate to and so that that's one of our key ways that we spend um, just our deep commitment is how can we take this brilliant science but make it simple enough and impactful enough that people care and people can remember things and feel that they can do something to make a difference.
0: Now you mentioned that People were interested and then eventually it sounds like business slash commerce caught up and now commerce is interested because of financial repercussions, challenges, etc. Mm-hmm. How often do you have a conversation with a company or organization where you find that they're doing it for financial reasons rather than and I know this is a morality question, the right thing to do?
1: You know, it's it's a blurry line. Because what we, we tend to be optimistic that even people who are doing it for essentially to take care of the bottom line, that if they understood more the impact and the power of what they were doing in shifting to make more sustainable decisions, that they would feel better about it. and care about it more. So that's part of our approach in working with companies, even that do do things and try to hide things that are impacting the earth. When we meet with them in private under NDA and they share some of their worries and concerns that we keep 100% confidential, Um, underneath that we have experienced they do care. They do worry about what are they What's the land that they're passing on to the next generations? How are their grandkids and great-grandkids going to be, um, you know, living and in, in their own dependence on what's happening? So that's where we, we really try to work within understanding the complex nature of human beings waking up themselves to the reality of what's going on. Because honestly, it's pretty overwhelming. Um, when we bring on, you know, early on, we brought on interns that helped us with the Earth Knowledge Portal. <laughs> and they would read these, you know, college students, you know, very, very bright. And they would read these articles and say, we, you know, we were mapping the location of different natural, social, and economic capital information. And they would say to us, is this true? And yeah. we would say, yes, I'm so sorry to say it is true. they're like well we we need to talk about this. this is really like I knew things were you know bad, but I didn't realize this and that's really what we see has happened um even with corporate leaders that underneath you know they they're like well, I didn't realize that we were really taking these kind of risks and so there there is that blurry line and we experience, you know, the the leadership, the the human leadership, the human aspects and various degrees of denial and acceptance and commitment to do something different versus just trying to save the bottom line. There is that just continuum. Um, But the way that we work with them is to really focus on the most optimistic path, which is mitigating financial risk as well, but realizing that financial risk does tie with operational risk and supply chain risk and investment risk and um, so at this point there's a huge movement that this ties into Raj, that ESG it, it became a very big deal in the corporate and and financial world and most companies are rated according to what that S&P Global or Refinitiv or whomever the the company is that is evaluating that company to see what they view their ESG risk is environmental social and governance risk what's happened though over time is that there's been a realization that really those decisions have been based on what is the information the companies are saying that they're doing? Not necessarily what actually is happening on the ground. So they call it greenwashing. So that's where Earth Knowledge comes in—is to say, well, we can tell you what's happening on the ground. We can analyze any asset, any op, you know operations or supply chain processes around the world, and we can let you know to some degree, you know, various all kinds of these 300 indicators of climate and biodiversity and all kinds of different risks, and we can let you know what things to be aware of, to be careful of. Uh, We can let the company know, we can let investors know, et cetera. Um, That is what's evolving today, and regulations are being put in place today in order for that process to happen. So that's where we're involved with the task force on nature-related financial disclosure, for example. Um, But rather than being afraid about that, we're hoping that corporations, yes, of course, would be concerned, but that they would also really have the desire to do something different and to mitigate their costs, and then have the ability like From Earth Knowledge that we can document um, those changes and they can report the changes that they really are mitigating their risks. So it's evolving. This whole process is evolving and it is going to take another, you know, 10 years to really be in alignment with these processes that are going to truly build a more sustainable world. But we, we choose to be as collaborative as we can, no matter what their kind of Look, look like they're doing or look like what their awareness level is. We've had so much success of behind the scenes being able to help corporate and business and government leaders wake up. Then we need to console them and then we need to get to work.
0: <laughs> it sounds like you walked them through the uh, five stages of grief. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Finally get to acceptance and now we can work together.
1: Yes. yes.
0: Yes. Wonderful. Now let's go back to 2003 when you started. You know, people were asking you questions, sounded perhaps a little crazy. What's your why? Why did you decide to take on this endeavor?
1: Well, in 2003, we knew and, and we began working right away on very critical projects and custom implementations. So that, you know, water rights in Las Vegas, the earth knowledge models were um, all developed related to er- Las Vegas being one of the first cities and the largest um, being faced with enormous drought and water restrictions and concerns. Um, So we had very, through the years since 2003, we've done some very significant work. It's just the models of building the digital twin and incorporating and doing it at scale the way that we are now. We just knew the computational capacities weren't there to be able to do that economically, um, that we needed to do it in pieces, and that we were waiting for the market to really, really be ready. But we would tell people that we thought that one day our company would become a multi-billion dollar company because that is how important the earth is. And Frank uh, Dinez and I see ourselves as leaders, he as president and CTO and me as CEO essentially just as instruments in that process. This needs to happen, not because of us, but because it really needs to happen. It truly is the only way for the most des- the sustainable decisions to be made. And we have an incredible r- rigor that we put all of our data and models through, is we won't accept anything that isn't authoritative, peer-reviewed, goes through our Earth earth knowledge, science councils, rigor to assess, yes, this is something that we can integrate into our models. So that builds trust then that we are the organization that can be trusted for that kind of planetary intelligence. And so that's what we've held on to because we've known that that's what needs to happen. And we've known that the earth is that important. And one day the business world would wake up to that. And fortunately that day is now.
0: Tell me more about being an instrument.
1: This is ties into your podcast. This is bigger than us. And when (sighs) Frank and I decided to, um, again, you know, my background was innovation. His background is, he's just a brilliant scientist and earth system scientist, Um, very innovative in his own ways. He always wanted to integrate different disciplines in science, and he would be told, as he was getting his PhD, no, no, you don't want to integrate disciplines, you want to focus. And he would say, well, I want to focus on the earth. So he brought that focus to us to say, and and with his technology background as well, to say, this is what we know needs to be built to make the best decisions in the world. And my contribution along with innovation and transformational change was also, and we need to make sure that the ordinary people like me. Can actually understand you, brilliant people, like all of the scientists who I love and who are a part of our Earth Knowledge Network. So that's been, you know, a really critical part of what we've done together. Then is built this capacity to make this really complex science and models simplify it with these indicators and be able to communicate in a way that's measurable and, in a sense, go from the Earth Cube to the spreadsheet and have it be a, a form through which, you know, better decisions could be made that the business is speaking the language of business and speaking the language of accounting um, to be able to make those, those real decisions.
0: Now you've used the word trust many times during this conversation. I see it as a very strong guiding principle. Tell me more about that.
1: Trust is something that really is the forefront of what we want to communicate about earth knowledge. It's really what even in COP26 discussions, there's discussions about um, what is the climate model information that's being used and how trustworthy is that information for our decision making. And having a source that can be trusted for the most reliable authoritative information is really critical because otherwise their data is going to be seen as um as an obstacle for change rather than a vehicle for change. So trust in that way, that the information has got to be seen and understood as being trustworthy, that decisions really, really important and big decisions can be made that can be uh, used with trustworthy scientific-based information. Trust also has to be integrated with our Earth Knowledge Network. Scientists in general... Are really brought up to be their own advocate in many ways, um, to create their own research, to collaborate most definitely. But it's been more in the last 10 years that putting multidisciplinary information has become more and more popular and common. But that also involves trust, is someone who's been studying geology and landslides and uh, roads and infrastructure and the impact, you know, on the land is different than a climate scientist. They think differently, they operate differently, they operate in different paradigms. When we used to informally advise people in the White House who would want to integrate across government agencies, they would say, well, how do we bring NASA and NOAA together? And we would say, the only way to really bring NASA and NOAA together is to respect that they'll always be very different. And that's a good thing. NASA's paradigm and what they do with, for example, just in in space and technology in space is very different than NOAA's focus, for example, on climate. And that's okay. They may have data sets that we want to integrate and share, but we need to Trust them and have them trust each other and not compete with each other, that everybody has their place to be able to provide and and then have us integrate this vital planetary information. So trust with our earth knowledge network is another critical piece. So it's not only with our customers and those that need the information, but it's also with our network. And then it's with our partnerships with Microsoft and Ernst & Young and Infosys and all kinds of partners that are new and developing. And um, we look for partnerships and they, partnerships, you know, very prominent companies are coming to us to partner. And that also requires trust to really get a lot done together to say, well, let's integrate our information into supply chain management here. We're we're going to be getting on one of the exchanges with their ESG hub. That all involves working together, collaborating, and some level of trust um, to partner together, really. And then finally, internally, within Earth Knowledge, we have a culture um, that really prioritizes collaboration, honesty, accountability, mindfulness, Um, We're all in this together. This is much bigger than all of us. Just like your podcast is saying, you know, (laughs) Earth Knowledge's mission is so much bigger than all of us. We just need to work hard, keep our egos out of the way, do the right thing, be as committed and consistent and passionate as, as we can be. Um, because this is much bigger than us and we, we want to see it really succeed and depending on each other and trusting each other to be able to do that is really a critical part for us and internally with earth knowledge
0: as well. Well, you strike me as a very introspective individual. What's the most valuable lesson you've learned about yourself on your journey?
1: To really follow our passion. Um, I really believe that all of us are given gifts that are unique and that we can really have a unique purpose or purposes in our world. Um, What Frank and I have had to go through in order to hold on to our mission really has involved going through and basically protecting ourselves from a lot of criticism and belittling from others who didn't really understand the Earth and didn't really understand where the market was going. And we built more thick skin through that process. We built a deeper commitment. We also built a very strong support system for those that really got earth knowledge. Um, there's there's a lot of money that we could have made had we done, You know, this is what people pointed out. Well, if you build a water app based on your water models already, you could be in the hundreds of millions of dollars of annual revenue. Why are you not doing that? Well, we're not doing that because our bigger gift to the world is really building the digital twin. And we'll wait until we're able to really do that. But we've weathered a lot of... um, backlash from that and also gotten stronger because of it. So that's one of the things I would encourage people to really find what your passion is and those that can support and empower you with that passion and also protect you from criticism, which all innovative stories usually have some part of that story of people trying to knock that innovation down or telling that innovator that it won't work or it's not a good idea or it's too big of an idea or whatever criticisms it is so that's what i would really encourage is is to stay steady and tight and strong with what you feel you really can can contribute in the world, Um, learn from our mistakes, which is something, of course, that we've been doing as well, Um, but really staying committed and with our heart and minds open that it gives really the best results. And I think it does make the biggest difference in the world.
0: It's the crazy ideas, right, that people have, or perhaps said differently, it's the shift in the Overton window where it moves from ridiculous to acceptable. Right,
1: and then to popular.
0: (laughs) There you go, exactly. Here we are. Here we are at popular, right?
1: (laughs) Exactly.
0: (laughs) So, Julia, let's fast forward into the future. If fast company, Newsweek, Time, pick a publication, were to write a headline about Earth knowledge, what would you like it to read?
1: Well, what I envision is in the next by 2030 that there will be this strong bridge being built between the brilliant scientific and sustainable science community and experts and those decision makers who deeply need that information, the corporate and government agencies, the financial sector, um, so that that bridge then can really be strong to truly help us make the most sustainable decisions to build a truly sustainable world where the triple bottom line becomes a way of life. So I see Earth knowledge as a key facilitator in helping to make that happen, helping to integrate the information, bridge the relationships, and help that uh, make that information more understandable and actionable with forward-looking planetary intelligence to really help us shift to become more nature-positive and climate-resilient.
0: Well, I look forward to continue to watch your growth. My last question, and you talked about it briefly earlier about people and passion, but if you could share some advice, words of wisdom, recommendations even with the audience, it could be professional or personal, what would it be?
1: I think the biggest lesson um, is what I was talking about, is that in the face of innovation, and in order to really bring big changes in the world, innovation is built into that process for people to remember that there always will be others who can't embrace those changes for whatever reasons, and to make sure that those naysayers aren't given power, but the ones that support that vision and can help with the practical steps of making taking that dream and making it a reality, that those are the ones that that are listened to, that are embraced at some level, um, that are incorporated into that innovator's life and company and process. And that is, you know, we do need each other, and we do need that support. But I think that's, that's really important. Our world kind of drives itself, you know, the media often focuses on what's negative, what's going wrong, um, what to worry about, you know, fear-based news in many ways. So it's easy for our brains to focus on something that is a negative piece of feedback far more than it is is easy to focus on the positive feedback. So I think watering the seeds of the positive feedback, nourishing and nurturing that is just really critical in being able to sustain our own vision of how we can make a difference in the world and just stay with that. And through thick and thin, through hard times and good times to really be able to stay with that.
0: Julie, I think nurturing and watering the seeds of positivity is a great place to end off. I really appreciate your time today and I look forward to catching up with you again soon.
1: Great. Thank you so much, Raj. I love what you're doing and I'm so grateful and privileged to be a part of it.
0: Thank you, Julia. Have a good day. You too. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic, you'd like to hear about send me an email btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website nexuspmg.com and while you're there you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech green tech sectors bigger than us is a nexus pmg production